Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Scott shares his winding path from starting a hedge fund right out of the University of Chicago to pivoting to a quantitative research position at Morningstar, learn why he jumped to Schwab and eventually earned his title of VP of Risk and Quantitative Analysis. We chat about his transitions, about the fast-growing passive ETF trend in the asset management industry, and much more. Enjoy. Scott, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to join. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I graduated, you know, from the University of Chicago, uh, you know, I, um, quite a while ago, probably almost 10 years ago, uh, but yeah, I studied with a background in uh, economics and statistics. Um, you know, during that time, I actually was, um, you know, pretty heavy into fundamental investing, equity research, you know, investing clubs. Um, but also actually got into options trading um, and developed all like, you know, volatility strategies uh, through my time in college, probably a little bit too much. Uh, but, you know, I did that for a little bit of time, uh, was trying to go to the hedge fund, roster, the hedge fund, and then did that for, you know, half a year to a year after school, decided, you know, I was going to go back to the workforce. Um, and then I kind of worked at Morningstar uh, for three years. Uh, I worked kind of, um, you know, in their buy side, you know, investment management arm, focusing on tactical and strategic asset allocation. So doing a lot of, you know, uh, top-down equity valuation work, as well as bottoms up, um, you know, valuing asset classes and the long-term expected returns and capital market expectations. Um, so after, you know, roughly three years of doing that morning start, you know, I, I moved to Schwab, um, more on the quantitative, you know, research investment risk side. Um, is that like it's folks, internal yeah. corporate, like you're doing, you're doing running risk, like on the in, is it more like an internal service for Schwab or was it just, uh, yeah, it was, it's basically the investment risk team or the quantitative research team. Um, so Schwab had, they have a lot of quantitative, they have actually eight quantitative, uh, active strategies, uh, five of which are domestic, you know, large. I, I interrupted your bio. Sorry. You can finish your bio and we'll get there. We'll go back. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was quite a small team and obviously Schwab is more known for their brokerage, uh, but they do have a lot of their own mutual funds and products, right? They're also really well known in the retirement space. Uh, so, you know, I covered the quantitative strategies, um, kind of, you know, work with portfolio managers, um, did a lot of quantitative research, market research, um, you know, also, you know, valuation work too, worked with a lot of risk models and really providing recommendations for portfolio managers and how to position their portfolios. Uh, so you covered both, you know, active fundamental and active systematic strategies. And then at the same time, because, you know, Schwab was, you know, quite heavy in kind of their retirement business, they had a lot of target date funds, multi-asset portfolios, um, where we would look to hire, you know, managers to, to essentially be sub-advised, you know, within like the active sleeves. 
right? So if we have like a, a target day fund, we want to hire, you know, large cap growth manager, you know, my job would be to interview um, a lot of the top fund managers to see if I want to hire them, fire them, put them on review. Uh, so I really, I interacted with all the top buy side, you know, funds uh, and, and, and talked to portfolio managers uh, on a monthly and quarterly basis, you, like including like BlackRock at the time, you know, ATR, Dimensional Fund Advisors, Dodge and Cox, uh, you know, well. They're, they're trying to convince advisor. you to give them uh, capital for as an right. outlet, basically. For, exactly. For that. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Okay. And then, uh, and then after that, for uh, roughly three years, then I kind of moved into moved to BlackRock in a very similar type of, you know, qu- quantitative risk role, except now I'm moving more towards the ETF space. So now I kind of, uh, you know, manage a team covering the equity iShares book, uh, roughly worth $2 trillion. Um, and it's obviously very, very different now, right? Uh, BlackRock, obviously, much larger firm. And Equity iShares book, there's like over a thousand funds, um, you know, both institutional and on the retail side. And so the type of work is very different. You know, back at Schwab, I could spend a day on each fund, diving deep, diving into the fund, um, looking at the portfolio positioning, doing market research. But at BlackRock, it gets very different because we're managing so many funds with with kind of a smaller team relatively for how many funds you have to manage. We have to think about scale. Yeah. Right, how to develop a risk infrastructure, um, how to do quantitative research at scale to manage all of these products. Where I come in the morning, create this risk infrastructure that maybe flags like ten to fifteen funds. Like, hey, you got to take a look at these because they're breaching our risk ranges. So what that comes with is decomposing the risk of every single fund into each individual components to come up with what is the expected risk level we would expect out of each fund and whether they're performing within that range. Um, and also, a lot of my work is goes into product development too. Right. Um, you know, BlackRock is now developing a lot of more exotic products. Um, for example, a lot of the buy right, you know, ETFs that recently launched uh, earlier in the year, they're essentially, uh, you know, covered call strategies on fixed income ETFs like HYG, high yield, you know, uh, iShares. Now there's the HYGW, you know, a strategy where we write covered call options on those. Um, and a lot of that work goes into developing the benchmark and the benchmark methodology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because after the product launches, all we do is we track the product. But a lot of the kind of the alpha research that goes into developing these products starts really upstream. So I'm really working with like index providers, back testing strategies, figuring out how is this product going to trade? You know, what is the strikes of the options? What are the expirations going to look like? When do we roll them? Um, and obviously take into account liquidity of these options, right? You may not always want to roll on the last day or the or two days before. Um, so a lot of like alpha type of research goes into passive products. It's not just as simple as, oh, you just match the benchmark, focus on rebalancing. There's a lot of um, active type research that goes into these. Um, like so the mechanics, like, oh, setting up the mechanics. Right. Like that. Exactly. Cool. So let's, Developing cool. new strategies, yeah. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more later, but let's go back all the way to your college days at uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago. So, you know, your econ minor stats, um, are you thinking finance all the way? You said something about a hedge fund. Do you try to start a hedge fund out of school? Was that, is that what I heard? I did. So I was actually, you know, I started... I was really interested in finance, like pretty much on an early age. I was into fundamental investing, stock picking, uh, like like DCF for your typical fundamental, like you know, stock junkie type of stuff. Um, yeah. And doing the investment clubs. And then yeah. I had a couple of friends. Fam- that was your family in that? How did you like come across it initially? That's a good question. Actually, my dad, he's an electrical engineer, uh, but he's always had a passion in finance. And mm-hmm. uh, he just told me when I was young, he just gave me a few thousand dollars. He's like, hey, go buy some stocks. You know, let's talk about it. At this point, I was like maybe 10 or 11 years old. I, I had no idea what I, was, what I was getting myself into. I think during this time, I was around the financial crisis. So it was a terrible time to start. Yeah. But also kind of a, a good a good way, right? Kind of great lessons learned. 
but you know, he always told me he would have gone into finance, you know, if he were to redo his career and he just told me whether you choose to be in finance or not, it's always important to be financially literate to understand how to invest your own money. It just happened to be, I loved it. You know, it was something I always wanted to do. Um, so that's, that's why I wanted to major in econ kind of as that foundational skill um, to, go sure. into, to go into the markets. Cool. So, okay. So you get there, you're like gung ho, you start, you're still, you've been trading now at this point for four or five years as a, mm-hmm. through high school. Yeah. Uh, you get to Chicago and what, what's going on in through your head? And then I also just like, you know, at the time, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, equity research was really like the sexy thing to do, right? Stock picking, um, you know, funnel investors, you'd have like the army of equity researchers, each one follows 10 to 12 companies. And obviously times have changed, you know, since then and even before then. And I kind of got bored of equity research in, in a lot of ways because I've been in it for so long. And I just want to try something new. I was young, nimble. Um, and at, at the time, I had a couple friends, um, you know, one, one of my close friends from high school. He was a stats major at Berkeley. Um, and he worked at some trading firms or internships. And he just approached me. He was like, hey, you know, like, I want to work on something together, you know, in college. Um, you know, I was back testing trading strategy, volatility strategies. And I think that like, there's a lot of potential arbitrage opportunities in this space. Um, and that's what really got me into it. Started reading books on options trading, really got, you know, into kind of derivatives trading, um, developing strategies. And yeah, I just, I just loved it. I don't know. I loved it more than- Do you, feel, sports, do you so feel like it was like, there actually was arbitrage opportunities or was it something where um, at that point, I mean, HFT, high frequency trading had already kind of started, I think, exploding by that point, right? So did you feel like there was money to be made or like, obviously anytime there's an arbitrage that people find it and it just, it just, it closes up. Right. So was it something like a repeatable process? You guys felt like you could continually to innovate to find right. money I or thought- yeah. What was the thought process behind it? Cause like, I think as college students, it's pretty bold to think, Oh, we can go up against these multi-billion dollar hedge funds and find, uh, I, maybe it's because you thought there was smaller markets that just weren't being paying, paying attention to, but I, I, what were your thoughts around that? So that's a good question. Like, obviously, you know, markets are highly efficient, right? Um, you know, my, my thoughts around it was, hey, you know, within arbitrage, even if you study economic theory, there's always limits to arbitrage mm-hmm. for various reasons, right? Um, for like trading out of the money, selling put options, like if you were to back test it all the way back to the 80s, you notice that there's like a very a consistent variance premium from selling deep out of the money options. You're almost getting compensated for almost being like an insurance company, right? Because you're like writing call options, writing put options deep out of the money. And oftentimes those are the most mispriced options. And you're wondering, you know, why is this persistent profit able to be made over time? You, you would think that it would be arbitraged away. Well, there's probably a number of reasons. Number one is the human aspect of things. The average human is very risk averse. They're willing to pay for that protection. Number two is just like limits to arbitrage regulation-wise potentially, right? You have all these funds out there that are primarily long funds, um, all the largest asset managers, like fundamental stock picking, they're all like long only and they have the most assets. And a lot of the times they're not obviously allowed to short, right? So a lot of times the best way that these managers can potentially protect against market downturns is by buying out of the money put options a lot of the times. Yeah. So there's kind of this uneven um, demand, supply. On demand exactly, yeah. that has been persisted from the early 80s. And actually Warren Buffett has actually talked about it. And even um, gotten worse the- probably as more you see, more is more, more and more money has flowed to these passive strategies. Maybe there's some passive strategies that employ this automatically. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Like, um, in terms of just the trillions of dollars chasing like right. similar names and stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. okay. There's a lot of white papers on it. You know, like Warren Buffett yeah. has actually talked about it actually in, in his early days investing. He sold a lot of long-term 
out of the money put options across various explorations on top of his fundamental value investing, right? He's actually talked about it, you know, in his early days. That's actually what he did too, to actually make some side money. Um, so I did a lot of research there. I just like, you know, I totally understand the aspect of there being market efficiencies, but there's also limits to arbitrage. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are definitely opportunities. Like we weren't trying to compete with the high frequency traders, right? right. Like we're not aiming to do the strategy. There's no way we're going to be able to beat those guys. Right. But if you can find your niche, find your find your market, I think there is definitely you know money to be made. For sure. So how did it go? So you launched this one with your friends in sophomore year. I launched. Uh, it was uh, roughly like I started maybe like around 2013, reading a lot of books uh, about it. Uh, probably didn't really start actually trading with real money. We did paper strategy first. Didn't start trading with real money until maybe like summer of 2014. Uh, did it for a year, year and a half. It was great. Like returns are great. You know, obviously, you know, at the time I just, whatever money I had saved up as a college student, I just threw all, threw it all into it. Um, it's something I wanted to pursue. Um, and why did I stop? It's probably the next question. Or not honestly, even why did you stop it? Were you doing any other internships during the time? I mean, that was kind of your junior year. Like, had you did you work any hedge funds? Were you doing any internships during school? Or were you just focused on this? Actually, I didn't. Did, I was going to junior year summer internship, and I decided, hey, I've got something good going here. I'm going to spend my time in the summer to do this. Um, and, you know, I was... Money, also, so you're doing paper strategy. How much money did you actually dump in? Did you have $10,000? Like $15,000, $20,000. Like me and my friend, we both chipped in. Um, yeah. Returns are great. Like, obviously, we took a lot of risk because we had a huge risk appetite as young kids. You know, we made like four, five times our money in like probably a year, year and a half. Obviously, highly volatile. Sometimes like I'd lose like... 30 40 percent in one day but that comes with the risk right you can adjust that risk level up and down yeah um you had a big enough yeah. role to to you know how the, the poker players they talk about bankroll right like you never want to yeah. be more than like a 200th of your bankroll in any right exactly game. it's like you're going to be collecting those premiums over time the biggest thing is risk management that's the biggest aspect of strategies yeah it's like you were able to lose 30 percent in a day and still survive like this. yeah within like it depends like sometimes black swan events right it's like yeah. you know you're going to lose money because we can't necessarily predict black swan events but it's how you manage that risk after it happens how do you minimize your losses yeah because those events are going to happen no matter what it's really after the fact after it happens how are you going to manage your positions how are you going to close them how are you going to hedge it that's where so you were having real, good returns. Yeah. Year and a half, you made four or five times your money, or like when when you pulled it out, you pulled out your money. What did that fifteen thousand turn into? Yes, turned into almost like 80, 90k or something like that. So what's I didn't put any more extra money. Yeah. Sorry. So what was that thought process of stopping and just going into the workforce? Why not just try to scale this? I didn't want to stop it. The biggest thing was I learned that in finance, same with any other thing, like the idea is ten percent, execution is ninety percent, right? It becomes really, really difficult when you're a 21 year old kid going around asking for money, and I have no credibility. All I have is like, hey, I've been trading for two years. I have this performance. People can always say, oh, even a broken clock is right twice, twice a day, right? Mm -hmm. So building that track record and building that reputation, you learn that there's a lot more to a hedge fund than just to starting a hedge fund than just um, the returns in itself. Yeah. You have to know people. You have to have because at the end of the day, if someone's going to invest in me, invest in the fund. They're not investing in the strategy. They're investing in me. A 21 year old kid they believe that you know i have what it takes to do it and in my mind like i can always go back to this at a later date um but you know i also felt like in order to scale something i've also just never scaled something at that age in my life i had no business experience um did you feel like in order to execute the strategies successfully you did need to scale and like in terms of team in terms of the systems you know right i did feel like you know at some point i want to gain experience in the workforce whether it's like managerial experience understanding business operations understanding business politics um how to raise money how to present 
What, and what did your uh, friend say that got your co-founder? Did he want to keep they going? agreed? I mean, we tried. Um, it's just we did a lot, we still did a lot of it on the side. Um, yeah. while during our full-time jobs, we decided like, you know, we don't have to go that quickly. You know, we could we could take our time, um, really, you know, focus on developing other intangible skills, right? Into starting a business, raising a business. It's not as simple as in tech, where if you develop a product and there's nothing out there and the product gains traction is very, very different because at the end of the day, finance is much more homogenous, you know, business. You know, there's so many things and products that are doing very, very similar types of things, right? It's, um, yeah. it's, it's not like tech where you can come up like a great idea. There's no, no one out there. Once you have traction and you've like developed this, you know, software, this app, people are using it. It's entirely different. You know, it's like, it's much easier to start in tech software engineering at a young age than it is to start a hedge fund when you're 21, 22. That sounds entirely fair. different. Oh, well, you, need the, you need capital, right? And right. Capital and like, it's hard to, and people won't give you capital until you have like 10 years of track record. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. Whereas it's almost the opposite. Like if you're super sharp, young tech engineer, some goo, some genius, mm-hmm. and you're like, hey, look, and we have traction, then people will be thrilled. Exactly. You know, like experts always say, like, you can't teach market experience. You know, all the best investors have 20, 25, 30 years. They've been through multiple market cycles. It's tough to give your money to someone when they haven't even lived through a full business cycle yet. That's just like the general mentality in finance. So t- t- talk, walk me through kind of as you're approaching this realization that you're not going to be able to raise any money, that you're not going to be able to scale this. And then talk to me about um, how you started the interview process, who you were reaching out to. Because at this point, you had already graduated, right? Mm-hmm. And so, right. like. You're kind of like a CEO, semi like of your own thing, which to a lot of people says, oh, you're just unemployed. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about like how you had those conversations, because this might be really relevant to people who also break out on their own and then decide, well, actually, no, maybe I should get some experience. So how did you kind of have those conversations around networking and how did you even get the interview at Morningstar? Yeah. Uh, Quite honestly, like, you know, at that point, like I told you, I'd spent so much time doing stuff on my own that I kind of like lost focus on my own schoolwork you know my grades weren't as good as they were going to be and obviously University of Chicago is also really crazy grade deflation right it's like the average GPA for a lot of the majors are like below 3.0 and mm-hmm. if you don't spend pretty hard studying a week you're not going to be able to get on the, the top buy side firms because you won't you know meet the GPA filter which is exactly what happened to me it turned into like a numbers game you know luckily you know Morningstar I think you know, obviously was started by a University of Chicago grad um, so I think even though my GPA is a little bit lower, um, they gave me an opportunity to interview. And, you know, at this point I'd sent out 50, you know, to hundred, you know, resumes, just like shooting it down a black hole, um, you know, see whatever I can get. And didn't really get that much back because of that, you know, obviously the, the GPA issue and obviously seemingly like I didn't have a junior internship. It definitely was a risk that I took. I now looking back, I obviously don't regret it. Yeah. Um, but on your resume, did you have like your returns and your strategy that you had been doing and on? Yeah. Okay, I so put it in there, I put in my cover letter. That was the most important part, right? I think the cover letter mattered more for me than any other person because of my unique situation. And actually my interview process through Morningstar was really interesting. They just grilled me on the strategy and the office strategy. That was every single interview. They're like, actually, this is like really, really interesting. Um, they're like, you know, we want you because like we can see you're really, really passionate about the markets. And that's actually to us more important than any sort of GPA that you can get. Because they know like this kid wants to be in it for the long haul, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's unfortunate that there's kind of this GPA filter that a lot of top buy side firms have, but it doesn't mean that you can't make an extra step or two to get to that spot, right? You can still get there. Yeah. Um, you just have to be very, you know, um, cognizant of your story, your narrative, 
deliberate. And, really, yeah. right, and very deliberate, you know, and, and really plan out your path. Um, so, you know, I started at Morningstar, obviously they weren't well-known by side firm, but still a big name mm -hmm. um, nonetheless. Um, so that's where I kind of got my first chance, essentially. Yeah. And data analyst. So, you know, did you have any sort of engineering background? You had a little bit of stats, but, you know, tell me about the learning curve, the skills you needed when you first started there, what they expected of you. Because there was like uh, some portfolio analytics mm -hmm. and acquisition. So you were buying portfolios for them? or uh, So, you know, the Morningstar's biggest product was Morningstar Direct at the time. You know, I joined Morningstar's, you know, development program, which was kind of a rotational program. Yeah. And that was my first role they put me in. And the reason why they put me in there was because at the time they were um, trying to improve their derivatives analytics. And they knew that I had experience with options and derivatives. So this is like the first group they put me in. Um, and they had kind of a rotational program where I worked there for like, you know, probably for a year, maybe less than a year or so before I rotated into the more asset management side. But we were essentially acquiring data and client portfolios to put onto our Morningstar Direct platform. It's not that we were actually getting their money. We yeah. wanted to get analytics and kind of build that database uh, for derivatives, mm -hmm. um, obviously for, for future use and for more, for obviously like developing algorithms and stuff like that. So I was really part of their data business, uh, doing a lot of ticketing, you know, answering client questions on analytics, um, you know, developing the advanced portfolio template with the SEC, which was at the time, um, you know, the SEC was trying to, you know, create uh, through the, the endport ruling, uh, how what type of you know derivative analytics they had to start collecting from asset managers to gain transparency, right? Uh, so I did a lot of work on the analytics side, um, portfolio analytics, like anything that you saw, uh, kind of like on the sales side research on Morningstar, Morningstar file boxes, all the analytics they have. Um, I was like in charge of all of that, essentially. That's awesome. That's pretty pretty good for your first job at a school. Yes, it's pretty good. You know, I got, got, got lucky they gave me a chance for sure. And then uh, was pay kind of like more, obviously not like a top hedge fund pay. Was it like mostly base salary, I assume? Yeah, it's pretty much all base. The pay wasn't good at all. Um, yeah. I mean, Morningstar General, I think the pay was, uh, you know, a little bit lower. Um, like 70-ish, 60-ish? Like what are we talking here? At the time, it was like 60 uh, back like 10, 10 years ago. Uh, but yep. also remember, it's all physical Chicago. Chicago pays me a little bit lower just because yep. like man, the cost of living is like cut in half. Like so at this point, what are you thinking to yourself? You're, you, I'm sure there's people at Chicago that it's like at the top hedge funds are like, oh, I got this bonus. And you're sitting here, you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I started my own hedge fund. Like I have, I have yeah. chops too. You know, are you thinking like, hey, I'm going to get there? Are you thinking, hey, let's map out this data kind of more data asset management career or what, what or are you i didn't really worry about that i wanted to get into asset management you know I, I had trust in my own skills my own market knowledge i understand markets really well at that age i think relatively to most people i had confidence at that point i actually took my cfa level one my senior year of college okay um and that's also why i potentially got some interviews it was like oh this guy's kind of ahead of the curve with my cfa early um so i actually did that um you know my last year of college and um Honestly, I think at a very young age, yes, I think it's it's easy for you to look at your peers and be like, oh, I'm making less money, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't matter in the long run. Early on in your career, you just got to learn, uh, gain, get the skill sets. The pay will come. Yeah. Um, as, as long as you're passionate about something and you work at it, people will notice it. And if you combine that with good networking, um, your, you know, your network will also work for you, right? And, yeah. and, and what I mean by that is, um, really like be giving of your time with people at work, right? You know, you want to get noticed, you know, treat the people below you as you would above you, 
I know a lot of people, they just sucked up to their directors. They're, they're above you. Don't, don't, don't do that. You got to treat people the same way. It shows a level of maturity. It shows a letter, level, level of leadership that you're giving them about your time. And people will notice that. That's how you get promoted. That's how you get people to speak positively about you, right? Yeah. If, if so you Tom, yeah of- speaking of internal or networking in general, you did make a transition within Morningstar, it looks like, from yeah. more like the data side to more the investment analyst side. Can you talk to me about like what the skill sets were different, how you made that transition specifically? Yeah. Like, was it because you were, you know, making, have, building a good reputation on the data side that, that you were able to make that internal transfer? And then how did you even, I know it can be tricky when you're in a certain group to kind of lateral to another one. How did you do that? Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was part of the rotational program. So they did expect oh, okay. to rotate. That's good. But, you know, there was obviously huge competition, right? Like everyone wants to rotate from data into like the equity research portion or rotate from data into like the asset management portion, um, the buy side asset management arm of Morningstar. So there is that competitive aspect. So this is where like the networking comes in, building a good reputation for yourself, you know, giving, just be giving of your time, like your, your impact in your role is beyond what you do day to day. Help your employees have an indirect impact on the company, right? If someone asks you for help, you should be giving to help. At the end of the day, you're all working for the same firm. Is there, managers- is there a specific example like of a time when you did that? Yeah, absolutely. If someone, you know, needs help with like a SQL query or something, you should be giving of your time, you know, help them. Like, you know, don't be stingy with your work. At the end of the day, you're working for the same company. People will notice that, hey, you know, this person, not only does he make a direct impact in this role, but he makes an indirect impact on the firm and on the department. And that indirectly affects the bottom line. You know, I think just when you're younger, you have to think bigger picture. Everyone gets stuck in the weeds. Yeah. And that reputation builds. My manager saw that, you know, the people in asset management saw that on the investment side. So when I interviewed, you know, people already, already kind of know your name. Right. It's like yeah. this guy's that he already kind of built a reputation for himself. You know, he's been a huge value add to the company. And this is really how you kind of stand out. You know, it's it's a huge part of his networking, right? You know, painting yourself in the right light. For sure. Um, and so this just is, like this is a rotational yeah. program, but it was competitive to get into that specific exactly. rotation. So we right. ended up in the it was called Capital Markets and Asset Allocation Group. Yeah. So like, this was how it, your work changed day to day and like what it sounds like it went from very data heavy to more like what to more obviously investment and analysis and stuff like that. And how like so what does that mean day to day? Yeah. Um so yeah, obviously a lot less on the SQL, um, a lot less on the coding side, and you know, more obviously with Excel, um, market research. Uh, so Morningstar had a subsidiary called Morningstar Investment Management, and that was their RA business. They had a lot of target risk portfolios that, that they would, um, you know, sell. And they also had an advisory business as well, uh, where, you know, other firms like, let's say, TD Ameritrade at the time, that when they weren't bought out yet, would hire us um, to give them asset allocation views and tell them how to, you know, position their portfolios. Uh, so both I had, you know, worked in advisory as well as um um, kind of managing, you know, Morningstar's asset allocation portfolios and entirely, obviously entirely different, you know, work, um, did a lot of market research, a lot of asset class level research. So at the time, you know, I was in charge of, you know, my sector research for like global consumer discretion and global technology. Um, and I would essentially model 200 to 300 different asset classes um, and come up with expected returns over a 10 to 20 year period um, using a very fundamental contrarian valuation driven approach. So I did a lot of, you know, economic research, um, pretty data intensive, obviously, you know, collecting. Your primary sources? Yeah, where are your primary sources for that data, like, to be able to do that? Bloomberg and Faxa. You know, Faxa was huge. Uh, you know, Faxa, they had a lot of really good index-level data. So let's say I wanted to model the Japanese 
tech sector and see whether we wanted to gain exposure to Japanese tech sector. Obviously, at the time, you know, Japan, we wanted to underweight. Yeah. Still, probably want to underweight. Um, but, you know, you would look at, you know, the topics, for example. Topics is the the kind of like the S&P topics was kind of the Japan yeah. overall index. But they also have the S&P topics, you know, uh, Japanese tech sector index. And so we look at the history of that index and the fundamentals of that index relative you know, to its median levels of valuation and seeing is it overvalued, undervalued based off of a bunch of these different fundamental factors, like, you know, price to book, price to earnings, price to adjusted earnings, price to sales, yeah. um, and really trying to understand what is essentially the median level valuation over time and seeing there's, it's essentially a mean reversion model, right? Yeah. You're basically trying to see what's a, what's a relatively out of favor, potentially a, a deal and what's, well, it's overly hyped <laughs> and right. you want to potentially underweight. So, right, exactly. If yeah. we felt like something was, you know, undervalued, a particular index or particular asset class is undervalued, you know, we may want to invest it. We would do more in-depth research, right? Because you still need some sort of a catalyst that's going to bring it back to fair valuation, right? So just because something's undervalued doesn't mean you should buy it, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, yeah, I mean there's probably some cyclicality around, you know, oil and gas and all this stuff. And like, you know, what's the play long-term, like, are there, are there industry trends that are going to be making, you know, oil and gas long run, like looking at long run when there's such like massive right. changes happening in, in the market and battery technology, yeah. it kind of makes it like scary just to be like, Oh, it's undervalued. Go. <laughs> yep. And at the time, you know, energy was performing very poorly, you know, and, um, and how we modeled the energy sector, you know, at, at the top down level is very, very different. We wouldn't use price to earnings, obviously. The earnings were negative. You wouldn't even touch price to cash flow. It was more like you look at price to book, price to sales um, relative to, you know, the last 20 to 30 years and really kind of understand, you know, when is it going to revert back? Um, and so like energy, for example, at the time was one of those things where we really underweighted uh, for quite a long time. Yeah. So, okay. So then you're kind of there for almost two years in that new role. And what's your thought process as you're kind of there? Your, your, your skills are growing. Why start looking around? You said you had said to me in another call, like you made a few moves and you kind of knew what firms you wanted to go do and you didn't talk to that many people. It wasn't like you were just sending your resume everywhere. You kind of ha had mapped your career. So talk to me about like why go to Schwab next in that investment risk specific role. And then kind of, first off, how did you even know what that path was at such a young age, kind of a couple of years out of school? Yeah, I'll kind of, kind of provide some context in terms of time, right? I think I graduated in a time where, you know, the the, mark, the industry and financial industry was really changing, you know, mm -hmm. like becoming more, you know, less focused on Excel, moving more towards Python. I think yeah. Python really took off over the last, you know, three to five years. And at the time, you know, Fundamental investing, stock picking was becoming less and less of a thing. It was becoming more of like kind of a turn to like the dinosaur age, right? Yeah. And active managers. Right. And yeah. active managers at the time, obviously, you know, obviously active managers are doing a lot better now given, you know, sector dispersion, you know, there's a recession, people are looking for active managers, but passive was like huge at that time. And also quantitative investing was was building. Obviously, there's a ton, a ton more data, better technology, you know, machine learning able to handle large data sets. The way people were investing was very, very different. You know, I didn't, in my mind, I wanted to change with the industry. You know, for the longest time, I wanted to go into portfolio management, go into equity research. So at this time, I was already kind of thinking about maybe you want to like move more towards the quantitative space. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hadn't really, you know, taken action. I'd worked at, you know, kind of the investment management arm for roughly two years now. And then one day, um, my, actually my first manager for my data role, uh, you know, reached out to me and, and um, he said, you know, he was actually moving over to Schwab. He, he was taking a huge, you know, the managing director position at Schwab and told me that, you know, he would like me to apply and potentially join them. And he knew that, you know, I worked with him for like a, a year in, in my first role. He's actually my first manager ever. Um, you know, great dude. Um, he always looked after me. He always tried to, you know, he always like had me in mind, right? He knew that I wanted to stay in a markets role and he was moving into a markets role at Schwab. Um, and he was like, hey, you know, like give it a shot. I know that, you know, you always wanted to kind of stay in markets and I think this would be a good role for you. And it was kind of more of a quantitative role and I had already kind of started thinking about it. It just happened to work out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I interviewed and that, that's how I essentially moved. It's just a combination of me already thinking about going more to the quantitative space given where the industry is moving. And, and really learning move. more about factor models. And that was a move um, here to West Coast. Right. Uh, actually, I was staying in Chicago, actually. Um, Schwab oh, okay. at the time, uh, they were opening their first branch in Chicago. And okay. so I was one of the first employees in the Chicago office for Schwab. Was your boss there too? Yeah, he's based in Chicago. His family's there. He's still there. Got it. Um, and yeah, I, I hadn't moved into San Francisco until maybe around the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved to the San Francisco office for Schwab. So tell me about like, what is even a senior manager of investment risk? What does that even mean? Um, like, what's the day-to-day like? How is it different from what you were doing before um, at Morningstar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way I started looking at strategies is very, very different. You start looking at cross-sectional bets in the portfolios. Like before, I'll just look at individual stocks you know, aggregate them bottoms up at the index level, uh, see what the fa- fundamental valuation is, what are the catalysts working in Excel, really, really little work on risk factors, right? Once you move to investment risk, when you start evaluating fundamental managers through the risk lens, it becomes an entire different beast, right? Because a lot of these fundamental managers, they're not very familiar with risk models. Sometimes a lot of these managers may not even be really familiar with the style bets they're making. They don't pay that close of attention to it. Um, like sometimes they manage the risk at the individual stock level. But when it gets aggregated up to the portfolio level, they may realize, oh, they're actually very overweight, you know, volatility or very overweight, you know, re- reversal or underweight profitability. And they didn't necessarily intend that. Um, and that can have outsized impacts on your attribution and on the performance of your fund if a certain factor moves significantly in one direction from like a market regime change or something. Like it did so, in 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like 2021, if people were underweight growth, they were... Right. So the way I start to look at the markets and managing assets, it went through like a completely change it completely through a different lens. Yeah. Um, and it became really, really useful uh, to really have, you know, that knowledge of both the fundamental aspect, but also the quantitative aspect of how factors actually, I mean, factors explain the vast majority of returns. You know, everyone knows that, you know, generating alpha is extremely tough, generating alpha more than the fees they charge. And so really understanding factor moves um, and under the hood. For people who don't know what factor moves, can you explain to the listeners what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, factors is essentially, um, you know, high level characteristics that you can describe a stock, right? You know, some stocks are going to have more value exposure, they're going to have more growth exposure, they have more profitability exposure, right? So let's say, for example, a profitability factor. Uh, there's many different ways you can 
measure profitability. Uh, you know, obviously you can look at margins, like the way that, you know, people model profitability might be profit margins. So you look at, you know, which companies have the highest profit margins, you'd rank them, you know, from top to bottom, all the different stocks. And you could almost like create a factor index weighted by profit margins, right? And that is essentially almost your profitability factor where you can see, oh, if profitability is now very in favor because we're entering a recession, you know, people want strong balance sheets, you'll see the profitability, essentially the factor index outperform the S&P 500. Or get, over, or get too overweight or get too hyped. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. so you're essentially you're slicing and dicing the market um, into these different risk factors that you think you know, explain the returns of a particular stock. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, just how everything has shifted so crazy mm -hmm. in the, from 2019 to today, 2023. These last three, three-ish years, well, since the pandemic, really, from like crazy bull to suddenly a dramatic drop to an explosion, really right. an explosion up with, with uh, liquidity to suddenly everything coming out of favor and interest rates exploding with, the, with the inflation. To everything just literally being just flipped on its head and reversed it's right and super fascinating um so yeah i mean i'm sure factors were <laughs> where i mean i'd be curious to hear like what you guys were saying in 2021 when growth was super you know before things started falling apart mm -hmm. stocks with no profitability i'd be curious if you guys were begging the table like might want to rotate into some more value at this stage or yeah know? it's funny because at morningstar you know longest time like we tried to underweight growth we thought that there's going to be a reversal 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 at the time there was this was 2016 2017 and it really hurt the performance you know it's really hard to time the market at some point obviously growth did reverse you know now we're in 2023 but man you're underperforming for like five or six years right yeah. continuously un, you know underweighting that aspect um i think it's just the aspect of like playing both sides you should definitely start trimming you may not have to be super aggressive trying to time the market but like a lot of the managers like we were talking where we were talking to at Schwab during the time, they were so growth heavy. Like everyone was overweight growth and that and overweight momentum too. Um and eventually obviously it broke down with the whole pandemic. I was overweight. Of, I was over I mean, especially I was you know, and I I was probably throughout the I was pretty pretty balanced throughout the whole bull run. But then what happened was in the crash. Tech, it made a lot of sense to just pile into tech where that's the one, you know, Slack, all these other ones, right. you know, Peloton, all these things. It made a lot of sense, right? So you could mm -hmm. go into there pretty confident. These are good businesses. They're growing. They're they're exploding, actually, in growth. So it made a lot of sense. But then I think it was the it was the, the non-rotate. A lot of people got caught with too much of that factor, but of, of mm -hmm. growth-oriented factors, which myself included. So like right. the last two years, you know, luckily I never, I never go too heavy i always have a pretty balanced portfolio so i'm okay like but mm -hmm. i know some people <laughs> go really aggressive or trade off leverage and it's it got ugly um right. last year or two so you know, now you mentioned it, it's actually really interesting because you could still invest in growth but in like a safer way right there's dividend growth strategies like dividend is also one of the really big risk factors in models mm -hmm. and there's a period of time i think uh, you know 2017 to 2020 ish where dividend factor really outperformed um mm -hmm. and you know, I think a lot of recommendations to manager was like, actually, you know, you could invest in the dividend factor in stocks that have pretty good dividend growth, 
mm. um, and get exposure to that growth, but also be protected on the downside. Yeah. Uh, the reason why, if you think about, you know, at the time, why did dividend perform so well? It's because interest rates were so low, right? Mm-hmm. Any sort of investor that was looking to looking for yield, looking for stable cash flows, they wouldn't put it in like the ten-year yield. At, the, at, at one point, Ever. the ten-year yield was like five hundred yield. Yeah, it's like you might as you might as well, you know, you get better yield from investing in the S and P five hundred than you did from putting in a ten-year treasury. Yeah. Uh, so that's why you know, for investors that were looking in yield. They moved away from fixed income. They started coming into equities because interest rates are so low for so long. Yeah. And it caught a lot of investors off guard. So a lot of them that were underweight dividend because they were just buying growth uh, in companies that obviously like didn't have any dividends. They just reinvest their cash into their businesses. Yeah. They got screwed. They were underweight dividend and the dividend yield factor, you know, really outperformed for a couple years, three years because of the substitution effect with fixed income. Yeah. Um, and now you look at now, actually, if you had put your money into, you know, dividend growth strategy. Uh, like one example is DGRO, DGRO, which is you know the iShares dividend growth. Since the, the the drop in last year, it's been pretty much flat. The total return, including dividends, has been positive. Actually, if yeah. you had put your money to dividend growth, you know, mid last year, early last year, you'd be totally fine. So there's ways to get a balance of both flavors. Yeah, uh, to really like ma- manage your you know assets from a diversified standpoint. For sure, yeah, it's really fascinating. So okay, so you're kind of. Start this job at uh, it was Schwab, right? So you're saying yeah. that you're there and um, kind of doing some, you know, more of these models and trying to, you know, identify factors and, um, but like your day to day, you're working with your boss, but is it it's an internal role or is it something where you're actually talking to clients um, and and helping them, you know, helping them? I wore a lot of different hats. It was internal yeah. and external. Uh, yeah. The internal aspect of, because Schwab also had their own active quant strategies. So I would have day-to-day communications with portfolio managers, do a lot of quantitative research for them, um, and really provide like recommendations on you know where they may be taking too much risk, maybe where they're taking too little risk. Um, and like, you know. What's the most important skill you had? Python? Market knowledge. Market knowledge. I think. Okay. There are too many people that are in the quant space now that lack that market sense, that lack that market knowledge. And mm-hmm. I think that is why a lot of portfolio managers don't really like taking advice from. And so when you say market knowledge, you think you're obviously your economics degree helped in knowing macro really well, mm-hmm. being able to talk right. about broad general macro, macroeconomic trends. Right. Do you agree? Is that like probably where yes. it helped you the most? Cause you could speak intelligently on that. Right. I think that's where it helps you be able to connect with portfolio managers. A lot of these portfolio managers are not necessarily the most quantitative. They're not doing the quantitative research. So if you can put a narrative behind the words, it yeah. makes it a lot easier for them to understand. So I, I'll give you an example, right? Yeah. I was looking at the time, you know, healthcare. Um, I was looking at kind of the, the macros, macro uh, risk models. And one of the factors was... Uh, Essentially, the sensitivity of the healthcare relative to economic growth, and this factor is proxied using the industrial production index. And you notice if you look at the factor and the exposure of you know, the healthcare sector relative to the economic factor of industrial production, the exposure had essentially doubled over the last fifteen years. So, essentially, what that means is healthcare is becoming less and less defensive. Large, large cap healthcare. Mm. That's what came through the numbers and came through the risk models. But what the managers want to know is why is that happening from a qualitative aspect, right? You know, the risk models are not always right. You can't just take the numbers for what it is. You need to like put some sort of narrative or a story behind it to make it more of a convincing argument. 
Now, the reason why that all is becoming retail, they're all becoming consumer like <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, all green CVS, yeah. <laughs> at the time, and and I'm sure you've heard about it, right? The industry has changed significantly. Back then, you know, all the large pharma companies, biotech companies, did a lot of their own R and D. Mm. Nowadays, in the late 2010s, they don't do R and D anymore. They let the small caps and the new companies do it, and they just acquire them. Mm-hmm. What this means is they're much less insulated. Now these larger, must, much, they're much less insulated to changes in the economy because now they're much more focused on commercialization of drugs, much more focused on manufacturing of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the revenue mix completely changed and it made the whole large cap healthcare less defensive. Now, this was a story. I don't understand that. So like you're saying that the because they became more acquisitive of small, they weren't doing the R&D, why would that make them more susceptible to less defensive? They're still selling drugs. They're still manufacturing drugs. Drugs still seem to be a pretty inelastic good, right? Or like pretty right. inelastic. So like what what part of that, I guess, makes it less defensive? Because they're it's become more like commercialized in the sense of like it's more of a, more of like, um, almost like non drugs that are non that mix became drugs that are not like needed for like critical illness, but more like cosmetics and other stuff or. Right. It's just like tied to instru- like industrial production. Uh, it's tied okay. to like, you know, oh, a, a okay. lot of like, yeah. Got it. it was a more of a manufacturing, got it. it became more of a manufacturing Increased costs business right. rather than. Right. Exactly. So like if you're more at the whim of increased input costs, like, yes, it's still defensive. Yeah. People are still going to be purchasing drugs, but your costs of producing those drugs are going to start increasing and you're going to be more susceptible to that because now a larger of your revenue mix is going to be in manufacturing. And even like advertising too. Yeah. Now they spend a lot of money on advertising, um, advertising these drugs and advertising is also, also you know, very cyclical. Um, the cost of advertising is also very cyclical. They're more exposed to these areas. Um, whereas back then in R&D, you know, R&D is like, it's much more defensive in the sense that, you know, you're, you can like license out drugs that you're doing research on. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and also like the acquisition aspect is also very cyclical. If you're focusing more on M&A, your ability to acquire smaller companies puts you in a much more cyclical business, right? Because yeah. if there's lack of funding and we're about to hit a recession, yeah. your uh, cost of financing is going to increase and your acquisition cost of smaller companies is also going to increase, which is going to hit your bottom line, which also makes large caps, less defensive. So that's also another aspect of it is the M&A aspect is cyclical in itself. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think of that. And so, okay, cool. Good example. So yeah, you're there for two and a half years. What Then what? And why the move? I just felt like I um, I wanted to move on. And I personally, I mean, I, I think at the time, like I wanted to work for, I wanted to learn more. I felt like I was, my growth at, after the three-year mark, I wasn't learning as much anymore. I felt like I was kind of like doing the same thing over and over again. And my team was pretty small. I wanted to like learn from someone new, uh, learn from a different firm. I wanted to get an obviously more reputable firm with, you know, better talent. Um, and so I started applying for, like you said, like top buy side firms, right? Um, I was very, you know, specific in who I wanted to target and what I was looking for. And at the time, BlackRock was, you know, at the top of my list for a number of reasons. Um, one, they're almost like the Google of finance. They have the best technology of any financial firm in the industry. You know, that's what separates them. Like at the time when I was, you know, covering products at Schwab, I was also kind of covering a little bit of the passive products at Schwab too. And when we did competitor analysis, I'd always noticed iShares always track tighter 
to the benchmarks and they almost always slightly beat the benchmarks even in the past space always i never really understood why um for so many years and i wanted to know like i just knew blackrock was number one and i after interviewing with the people i think just the level of talent there the caliber of people on average so much more and you you know best way, one of the best ways to go your career is your network and also the people you learn you learn from it's not just about the role itself um yeah. i want to surround myself with you know people that had the same level of motivation at the same level of uh you know um passion for markets and i felt that the culture at blockrock had that and it was something that a lot of firms i feel like misses mm -hmm. um and the technology aspect um and yeah and obviously just a wide range of products there's just so many more products i can learn about and learn from and so you were looking to do something similar to what you were doing right. just at a different firm so tell me how it's how, how has it been it's been very different it's not exactly what i expected um yeah. tell me why you know, i think i think maybe, that's always hard because like before you make the jump you think something but then you know mm -hmm. you see your manager how they work the way that firm works and you know you've been you were there for almost three years and then suddenly you're in a new in a new role which is supposed to be similar but tell me how it was different and why it was surprising i think the most surprising part was how much research and quantitative research goes into managing a passive product um in the etf space you know at the time i'd, I'd considered actually i'd interviewed with you know the active systematic team and the active fundamental team at blackrock i also interviewed with um kind of you know, the beta team, which is that's what they call it there for, for the ETFs uh, beta. Essentially, you're, you're looking at you know, market level risk because you're not necessarily making active bets. Yeah. And it was interesting to me because I wanted to try something new. And like I, I told you, I always knew like iShares is obviously a huge growing business, you know, huge money going to passive. Um, a lot of it is because multi-asset, a lot of these multi-asset products have iShares as underlying, you know, funds in their portfolios. And I wanted to be, I always wanted to be on the right side of the changes in the industry and that's what kind of drew me to it um and then what was so fascinating about it was the product development in the passive space developing these new strategies it's almost like you're gen that there's so much product innovation in this space and the reason why there's so much growth um is because you know we're doing all this kind of like developing these new strategies generating you know alpha on an absolute return basis while also continuously lowering the fees and lowering the costs for investors, right? You know, so many investors are talking about, oh, you know, fees of active funds are too high, blah, 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 which is entirely true because, you know, a lot of most managers, obviously, as people know, you know, don't beat the benchmarks after fees. They're not, you know, whatever they charge the cost, they're not able to generate alpha over the long term to meet those costs. And so the value proposition for active just wasn't really there. And I could obviously see that's why there's such a huge growth in the ETF space. Um, not only that, you know, as you know, ETFs also are highly tax efficient vehicles. Um, you know, they actually exist in two places, in the secondary market and the primary market. I think a lot of people don't know this, um, where the, if you buy an ETF, you're actually just buying the shares of the ETF. You know, you're not actually necessarily buying the underlying stocks mm -hmm. within that ETF. And the reason why ETFs have such great liquidity and it trades like a stock is because there's a second layer called the primary market where there's these APs or authorized participants that almost act as liquidity providers and they hold inventory of stocks, right? If there, if let's say, you know, a retail investor wants to buy, a, a block of retail investors wants to buy a particular ETF, 
the ETF order goes to authorized participant. The AP holds obviously a bunch of stocks inventory, almost kind of like market makers. Mm -hmm. And then we create an ETF share. BlackRock does, right? We give the AP the ETF shares and they give us the basket of stocks. So if you notice this exchange, we're never selling or buying the stocks. They're all just exchanging of baskets of stocks, which is why there's no taxable event. Yeah. And that's why ETFs are so tax efficient. That's why they pay less, way less taxes than mutual funds. And you have a rebalance without having to go in and out, right? It's re you're getting exactly you're getting rebalanced. So, question I have for you that I think you know, I think I've heard it a few times. So, like as trillions and trillions and trillions of more dollars flow into these passive funds, um, do you see there being risk around specific concentration? Like, if there's too many in a in the standard S and P 500 shares, right? So, like being in the S and P 500 or not, isn't that single-handedly like driving the value of the business or the market cap of that business way up just because there's so much passive that has to has to track that index? Like, so like just that decision of being, whoever decides, you know, whatever companies are in the S&P 500 or the Dow or whatever it is, whatever index you're tracking to, doesn't that have like an outsized, or couldn't that eventually have a really outsized um, impact on the valuation of the actual company because there's yes, and it absolutely seeing, does. Are you aren't we already are already seeing that? Like, is that something where, like, as a factor, like another factor of being part of an index could almost you could almost say it's overweighting. I mean, that's probably why there's so many other additional strategies you guys are coming out with in more breadth to these baskets because exactly. you shouldn't be putting it all <laughs> in in the one basket, but like. Yeah, what's your thought on that? Because there is just so much flowing to the passives. It's like, to me, like, is there systemic risk around, you know, uh, some of these larger baskets that are just now accumulating? And it's not just it's not just BlackRock. It's all the others that are also have the same five hundred or the same thirty uh, stocks. What's your thought? Any thoughts on that? It definitely generates more volatility in the market, especially because so many of these, let's say, there's, there's like Vanguard, State Street, right. Yeah, BlackRock, all these index providers, they all have like your typical S&P 500 index, right? So that's why like now more so than ever, all these companies are trying to get into the index because they know that it's, if you get your name, your company into the S&P 500 index, it's automatically going to pump up your stock. There's more eyes on it. There's more demand for it. Yeah, so, now but more how, so than but how much do you think it's like a 20% premium, like from being the 501st company to being the 500th company? Like, does your does your stock like get a 20% market cap boost? Is it like worth billions of dollars just to be in that index? Probably, right? I think it does. Um, but also- Like remember you know, Tesla think, got added or something and it was like this big deal. Or was it Tesla? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think Tesla's added, but I think uh, for a long time it wasn't added because S and P had certain rules around uh, how many years of profitability, like profitability, you needed in order to get in there. Right. Um, so depending on the index methodology and what you need to meet in order to get into those indexes, but I mean, like you said, that's a million dollar question. You know, I think there's been a lot of talk on CNBC, you know, just headlines talking about, oh, are we in like a passive investing bubble? Right. Right. Now. That's entirely true. That's a million dollar question. Like, I'm not going to put my opinion out saying that we are in a bubble or we're not. You know, it's obviously a very difficult question to answer. But the vast majority of money that's actually in passive is going to be in like public pension funds, going to be in um, retirement space, right? In order for a bubble to pop, there has to be panic. People have to pull money out. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, retirement, it's all locked. People can't really pull it out. So people are saying that even though there is a premium to these names are, are in the passive space, 
it may the premium might actually stay there for decades. So people are kind of talking about the you know there's thoughts experts are saying that potentially you know you know when the baby boomers start pulling money out at retirement age, right? It may lead to a large decline in a lot of these large cap names because of you know the selling of you know these large cap names and these indexes in the retirement funds. I'd just be curious um, to hear like or just to think about that, like that whole factor, like the demographic factor moves, like the, because I think that's super interesting, right? Like in terms of these passive strategies, you know, they're exploding in growth. I mean, maybe the explosion of growth and the money moving in would offset those big boomers pulling it out so that it's kind of, you know, a wash, who knows, but like, maybe not. Um, right. maybe, maybe they're going to continue the, maybe the premium is going to continue over the next 20, 30 years where it gets to a point where there, maybe it's a bubble that just gradually very slowly builds mm-hmm. and then it becomes really scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think the passive space, I think there's obviously in my mind, there's still more positives than negatives. Um, yeah. it, it's okay. definitely, I agree. Investing. Yeah, yeah, I agree hundred percent. And I think, I think there is some solace in the sense of not everyone just puts it in an S&P 500 index. <laughs> so like there are, there's a lot of money going elsewhere. Um, right. I think the space is evolving pretty quickly. I think there are, you know, mitigating factors, right. In the sense that like all the vanilla, you know, ETFs have already come out already. Now there's a lot more bespoke products. Like we have like an iShares, like Saudi Arabia ETF, an iShares Poland ETF. Yeah, like we're offering so many products now. With it's even companies. short, short based uh, ones, right? There's, there's like Vol. Right. There's, there's all these other ones that, right. you know, allow people to get different, uh, you know, exposures. Yeah. Stuff, so. Yeah, I think that has a lot of mitigating effects uh, for sure. And right now, like BlackRock, for example, the primary focus is to come up with a lot of these more exotic products. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot more firms are you know, following that footstep because there's a lot of market share to be grabbed. And as more of these products come out, there's also a shift, you know, from kind of the larger index funds and just say like the S&P 500s. And really, if you think about it, the active investing and the onus is really put on the retail investor, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you're not buying like an active manager who's actively managing S&P 500 benchmark. Now it's up to the retail investor to decide, oh, you know, I want to allocate my portfolio to like a European ETF mm-hmm. or like a Chinese technology ETF. So yep. the onus is going to, I think, put more on the retail investor. I don't know how, how that's really going to, you know, shape the long-term investing landscape. Because um, at the end of the day, like, it comes down to financial literacy, right? And I think there's so, I mean, I think retail investors, uh, it's, everyone's, you know, investing is like so heterogeneous. Everyone has different views of the world. Yeah. Um, there's going to be just a lot of demands for all these different bespoke products. And I think that in general, the products in the pacifists will become more and more diversified over time. Yeah. Um, so I don't necessarily think, you know, I don't know how big that bubble is going to be or or how worried I'd necessarily be because I do see a lot of innovation in the space where there's a lot of, you know, different There's, there's money flowing not just to the same names everywhere. Exactly, yeah. 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 And it's another example is like the ESG space. Um, you know, we have a lot of these ESG passive products now uh, where, you know, a lot of, we develop these ESG indexes um, where we have to develop a methodology for what stocks can make it into this ESG index, right? They have to maybe meet some sort of an MSCI ESG score. Um, like they may meet some sort of a baseline screen, like, oh, they cannot be involved in like, you know, fossil fuel production or manufacturing, cannot be involved in like tobacco or like, you know, or stuff like, you know, 
child labor or, you know, like sex trafficking. There's a lot of these like, yeah, the, you know, factors that are putting more focus on like companies that are uh, much more like conscious of like obviously society and like, ex, ex, like um, they're much more conscious of like, you know, making a positive impact in society. So like this is, you know, putting more money and flows into, you know, ESG names, which I think is great. Awesome. Um, it's not just all about profits. You know, it's about, you know, putting money in and creating this more sustainable future for, for us to live in. That's great. Well, Scott, out of all your moves and all your things, what would you kind of leave listeners are uh, listeners with in terms of words of final words of wisdom? <laughs> I mean, I'll just say like, I mean, I think a lot of times people in finance, they really go after money or whatever it is like, Follow your passion first and foremost. Like, you know, I didn't know I would be has the money arrived? Are you making three, four hundred-ish? Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. Um <laughs> uh, three million dollars a year. No, just kidding. definitely, you know, definitely not trailing uh my, my peers as I did my first role. Um yeah, but yeah. you know, definitely chase your passions, focus on skills, skills, skills. Cause if yeah. you develop the right skills, it'll show up in interviews, it'll show up through your resume, and people will want to hire you. Yeah. Um, you know, don't be discouraged just because like you set out a hundred resumes and you got like one interview. But I totally understand it is discouraging. And I think I've been through that. A lot of people have been through that, but it doesn't mean that you can't get to where you want to get. Um, and you can still have a very, very fulfilling career. So just like, you know, think long-term, like your career is 20, 30 years, um, just because you aren't where you are right now, like just put your head down and just, you know, work harder. It'll definitely come and, um, you know, net- network properly, you know, as I said, you know, you know, like I said, I think meeting it's you know meeting people is the easy part. The harder part is, you know, um, portraying yourself in the right way to the right people. Um, otherwise, you're going to be finding yourself introducing yourself to people one at a time. You want to make your network work for you, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you build reputation over time, um, and that's how you grow your career. And the same thing with developing skills. Um, you got to think very long term. I think. Um, I mean, your career's gonna be long. Like I'm, I feel like I've been in finance for a long time, but man, I'm yeah, probably not done with my career. Your network working for you is kind of like as you're kind of approaching the end of a call or end of a coffee chat. It's almost like, well, is there anyone else you think I could talk talk with? That kind of that kind of thing, and then obviously keeping in touch with them, and so that mm-hmm. they feel a connection with you. They want to help you because they mentor to you, and right. they want to see you succeed. So I think that's. Right. People underestimate that power of that um, because you know why they're going to want to help me. I can't do anything for them. Well, they probably maybe see see themselves in you. They want to help. They right. feel good about themselves, giving back. That's value. So not only that, it's just also like you know, be personable. I think a lot of people say that, but what does that exactly mean? Like yeah. you know, when you work, people don't want to just talk about work. Mm-hmm. They want to know that you're a fun person outside of work. You have a lot of energy. You're an interesting person. At the end of the day, you're going to be spending forty plus hours with this person. You know, That's day in day out. Hilarious because right. we had a top trending content on the on the forums this past week, which was like, "How do you? How can you be interesting? I'm so boring because all I do is." Work. <laughs> uh, but there was some good yeah. stuff there. Yeah, I try to use <laughs> at least um, outside of work. But um, <laughs> listen, Scott, we'll end it there. Thanks so much for joining and sharing your your story. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.